Hi there. You're listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 42, The First Punic War, The Sicilian Wrestling Ground. In the year 276, King Pyrrhus of Epirus had left behind the island of Sicily on a warship in order to continue his war with the Roman Republic. In one of his many failed campaigns, he had reached an impasse with the Greeks of Syracuse and the Carthaginians who managed to fend off the Epirot adventurers' dreams of a foreign kingdom and retain their position in Sicily. According to Plutarch, in one of those many dubious anecdotes that may not be true, but might as well be, Pyrrhus gazed from the stern of his ship at the island as it passed into the distance and spoke to his entourage, quote, My friends, what a wrestling ground we are leaving behind us for the Romans and the Carthaginians. Only twelve years later, this prophecy would manifest into reality, as the Roman Republic and the city-state of Carthage would struggle for control of Sicily in what would be known as the first of three Punic Wars. The First Punic War would be the longest uninterrupted conflict in antiquity, stretching from 264 to 241, and costing hundreds of thousands of lives in the process, as the two powers battled for dominance in the Mediterranean. Like the Peloponnesian War, the Punic Wars are unique because they are the only large-scale conflicts in classical antiquity to involve states that have elected leadership, rather than kings or emperors and so are immensely important not only to the immediate Mediterranean and Hellenistic world, but they may provide lessons for the modern world as well. In terms of our sources, we are relatively lacking when compared to the Second Punic War. The Roman historian Livy's account has been lost, though a summary of his writings have been recovered, and the later Appian and Cassius Dio covered it to some extent or another. Thankfully, we have a very detailed account by perhaps the most important historian and our soon-to-be close companion in the Hellenistic period, Polybius. I spent the entire last episode discussing Polybius and his histories, so I encourage you to check it out. But if you haven't, Polybius can be approximated as being the Thucydides of his time. He was remarkably astute in his observations and was dedicated to finding out the closest approximation of the truth for the events that he covered. The benefit of using Polybius is his in-depth look and analysis of the origins of the conflict, rather than just a recording of battles and events. We may ask the question, were the Punic Wars inevitable? But I don't necessarily have an easy answer to give you. Scholars and political scientists have spent decades asking the same thing about the Peloponnesian War and the so-called Trap of Thucydides, and the Punic War could theoretically be applied to this controversy as well. An excellent place to start is the relationship between Rome and Carthage. I covered in detail the early history of Rome in episodes 22 and 23, leading to their war with Pyrrhus of Epirus in episodes 25 and 26. I covered the Carthaginians in episode 40, and their conflict with Agathocles of Syracuse in episode 39. Now, this is a lot of backlog if you haven't listened to already, but don't worry, I saved the most relevant material discussing Romano-Carthaginian relations for this episode, and will make reference to past events when I need to. By the 6th century BC, the Carthaginians of modern Tunisia were certainly the largest political and military body in the western Mediterranean. Rivals such as the Sicilian Greeks of cities like Syracuse may have posed a challenge in distant theaters like Sicily. But by and large, the Carthaginians were the preeminent force. According to tradition, in 510-509, the Romans abolished their monarchy and established their republic, and at this time were one of many smallish Latin-speaking cities in central Italy, 
flanked by larger powers like the Etruscans, Celts, Greek colonies, and other Latin and Italic tribes. Over the next few centuries, the Romans expanded to becoming the most powerful city in central Italy, certainly by the end of the Samnite Wars in the late 4th century. The Carthaginians and Romans certainly had interacted to some degree, given that Italy and Sicily were economically prosperous regions, and the Carthaginians recognized Rome as a significant political player, even during its earliest days. In the third book of Polybius' histories, the historian presents three separate treaties signed between Rome and Carthage, preserved on bronze tablets in the Roman archives. The first treaty was signed in the year 509, and Polybius commented on the difficulty of translating it into Greek, given that even the most educated Romans of his day had trouble reading it due to the Latin being archaic. Much of it is focused on the mutual respect of each other's territories for trading, mainly preventing the Romans from sailing into North Africa barring Carthage itself, and the Carthaginians recognizing Rome as the major power of Latium. But it also gave the Romans the same legal and financial protection while they were in Carthaginian-controlled Sicily. The second treaty was signed sometime in the latter half of the 4th century, expanding the friendship to include the other Phoenician cities of Tyre and Utica, and specifically prohibited Roman piracy and colonization efforts in both North Africa and Spain, while Carthage would return to Rome any Latin cities that they may capture in wartime. The renewal and expansion of the treaty terms might be a sign that Carthage recognized the Romans as a potential ally against the Greeks of Magna Graecia, especially the tyrants of Syracuse. Such concerns were exacerbated when the tyrant-turned-king, Agathocles, had invaded North Africa itself in approximately 310, the first time Carthage had faced any considerable foreign army on her home soil. Allegedly, there was a third treaty signed in 306, the so-called Treaty of Philinius, which appears only in the histories of Philinus of Acragas, who was a pro-Carthaginian source bent on making the Romans the cause of the war, and most scholars rejected as being a fake. The true Third Treaty would be prompted by the arrival of King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who brought an army in 280 BC on the invitation of the Greeks of Magna Graecia, who sought aid against the Romans that were quickly swallowing up the Italian peninsula. Initially, the war went well for Pyrrhus, but issues regarding their seemingly endless supply of Roman manpower and their unwillingness to quit was taking a toll on his own army, and given the Epirot conqueror's inability to fixate on any one task at a time, it was little surprise when he turned his attention to Sicily in 278. The city of Syracuse had suffered tremendous instability since death of Agathocles in 289, and Pyrrhus had a son by Agathocles' daughter, Lanassa, so he could argue his legitimacy in claiming rulership over Greek Sicily. The Carthaginian cities on the western portion of the island proved to be a stumbling block, and by 276, the Greeks were tired of Pyrrhus' presence and refused to provide him any further assistance for his planned invasion of Africa, and so Pyrrhus was sent back to Italy. In 275, the Romans had smashed the Epirot army at Beneventum, forcing Pyrrhus back to Epirus and the Greek peninsula, where he would die an ignominious death in Argos only a few years later. The Romans and the Carthaginians had mutually recognized the threat of Pyrrhus, and in 278, the third treaty was signed, which required that both parties would have to be jointly present during any negotiations or alliances made with Pyrrhus, in addition to some sort of logistical or financial support for one or the other. An incident suggests that the Carthaginians had sent about 120 warships with the offer of aid, which the Romans declined, but they did use Carthaginian transports to carry Roman troops to Regium to sabotage Pyrrhus' shipyards. By 275, Romano-Punic relations seemed to be better than ever. 
though the military alliance signed in 278 seems to be born more out of the urgency of the Pyrrhic threat rather than a growing sense of camaraderie. The clause regarding joint signatures and alliances indicates that both parties did not completely trust one another, and the polite refusal of Carthaginian troops by the Senate, along with the lack of direct military support in Sicily, suggests neither side wanted direct intervention on their respective territories. Still, nothing necessarily suggests that the Romans and Carthaginians had any intention of conflict. Yet, over the next ten years, circumstances would begin to change the political landscape, particularly in regards to Sicily, and cause both powers to directly butt heads, and ultimately lead to the outbreak of open warfare. In 272, the Romans managed to subjugate Tarentum and the last resisting cities of Magna Graecia, thereby extending Roman control from Latium and the surrounding center all the way to the south of Peninsula. The submission of the Greeks, Samnites, Oscans, and other various Italian peoples had now expanded the Roman sphere of influence further than ever before, but they were now only miles from the shores of Sicily. This provided a huge boost to the Roman economy, not only from the booty and slaves accumulated from the wealthy cities of Magna Graecia, but also the access to the trading routes that linked to North Africa. The creation of at least 10 different colonies from 289 to 263, and the seizure of the Brutian forests, some of the finest timber for shipbuilding in all of Italy, indicated that the Romans had sought overseas trading ventures at the very least. Some scholars have offered a different interpretation to these events, believing it to be part of a conscious plan that was anti-Punic in nature, as the Carthaginians themselves had been expanding their power in Sicily during the cleanup of Pyrrhus's operations. These colonies, mainly military in function, were on the side of the Italian toe facing North Africa and Sicily. The sea's timber supplies could be used to build a great navy to combat the Punic fleet as well. There seems to be little evidence of the Carthaginians preparing for such a conflict, but it might also be fair to say that perhaps the Romans had nothing urgent to fear from the Carthaginians. After all, it seemed to be business as usual in Sicily, with neither the Greeks nor the Carthaginians able to decisively push one another off the island, with the eastern portion belonging to the former and the western portion to the latter. The situation that would heighten political tensions between both powers would take place on Sicilian soil. One of the recent political developments of importance was the ascent of the crowned king of Syracuse, a man known as Hero or Hiron II. Hero was a Syracusan nobleman that earned his prowess serving as a general under Pyrrhus, and shortly after the king had left, he was made the general of a rogue army, and eventually managed to set a coup in motion in 275 that had left him the tyrant of Syracuse. Much like his political predecessor Agathocles, Hero managed to be declared king in 268, thanks to his victory over a group known as the Mamertines. The Mamertines were a leftover of the reign of Agathocles, who hired a large amount of mercenaries from the Campanian region of Italy, and in the year following Agathocles' death in 288, they had seized the Sicilian city of Messana by killing much of the inhabitants that hosted them. These Campanians adopted the name Mamertines after the war god Mamer, a close approximation to the Roman Mars, and were appropriately warlike, engaging in piracy and extortion while using Messana as their base of operations. Their marauding banditry in both Sicily and southern Italy had immensely angered the local Greeks, and was one of the main reasons why they called Pyrrhus onto the island in the first place, whose arrival prompted an alliance between the Mamertines and the Carthaginians. Despite being defeated by Pyrrhus, their position was not compromised, and when the Epirot king left, they returned to their jolly ways of brigandage. The tyranny of heroes soon changed that, and by 268, the Mamertines were utterly crushed, 
near the Longinus River by the Syracusan force, and retreated back to Masana to withstand a siege. Now, here's where the developing situation gets exceedingly complicated. Faced with annihilation, the Mamertines decided to send two requests for help. According to Polybius, the first would be sent to the Carthaginians, their former allies who were close at hand, and were the first to respond, sending a commander named Hamilcard who convinced Hero that a siege would be futile and tricked him into leaving for Syracuse. The second request for help was sent to Rome, banking on the notion that their shared sense of Italian identity would compel the Romans to assist. The confusing part about this is that the text suggests that the Carthaginians answered the call of the Mamertines almost immediately, during the year 269 or 268 depending on when the Battle of Longinus took place, yet the Roman response is said to have taken place about five years later in 264. It doesn't make sense why the Romans would deliberate for about half a decade considering the siege itself would probably last a year at the absolute most. One possible explanation is that the general chronology of events is wrong, that the Battle of Longinus and the following siege took place in 265, making the Roman response occurring the following year seem much more realistic. The other possibility was that the Mamertines were simply opportunistic. The Carthaginians had driven away Hero and placed a garrison in the city to help ward against possible attacks, and the Campanian mercenaries were more than likely aware that such a bargain meant that their autonomy would be severely restricted by their Carthaginian protectors. This then led them to send their envoy to Rome in either 265 or early 264, looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card to the situation that they placed themselves into. It seems that the question of whether or not to intervene on the behalf of the Mamertines was not easily answered, and Polybius says a long period of time had passed before a resolution was made during the debates in the Senate. If Rome was to provide aid, they could be perceived as being hypocrites, since during the Pyrrhic War, a rogue group of Romano Campanians led by a certain Decius had taken the allied city of Regium in much the same despicable manner as the Mamertines, and for their trouble, they were all flogged and beheaded in front of the Roman Forum. This was a demonstration of the Roman virtue of fides, or good faith towards their allies, as they returned the city back to the people of Regium. But this would show Rome as being in the wrong by supporting such an act against Syracuse. Polybius points out that the eagerness of the warhawks of the Roman nobility was driven by their desire for military glory, something that would be the root cause of later Roman conflicts both foreign and domestic, and the common citizenry of Rome would not turn away from the prospect of acquiring plunder from the prosperous Sicilian cities. Never mind that, Sicily was a breadbasket of the Mediterranean, and would be capable of feeding the exploding population of Rome and Italy. If we were to suggest that there were some sort of grand strategy for the Romans, Polybius himself argued that the Romans were terrified at the extent of Carthaginian control in Spain, Libya, and Sardinia, and it was only a matter of time before the Carthaginians managed to swallow up Sicily and get a foothold into Italy, making a Roman response quote-unquote defensive imperialism. Cassius Dio claims that the Romans and Carthaginians had mutually envied each other's possessions, and this was the reason that led to war. The Romans always sought to look for a casus belli, a justified reason why they would need to go to war, and after all, one of the maxims frequently put forth was that the Romans conquered the world in self-defense, though it's almost always said with a degree of irony. As I stated earlier, it seems like the fighting between the Carthaginians and Sicilian Greeks seemed like it was business as usual, so perhaps this can be interpreted as an act of Roman aggression above all else. Still, a defense can be made for Roman concerns. Carthage's intervention 
while not too far from the norm of Greco-Punic affairs, was self-interested opportunism as well, and they had never been as far northeast in Sicily nor as close to Italy itself before. Roman martial ethos is also something to reconsider, in the sense that we often assert the idea that the Carthaginians were somehow more passive, and our tendency is to focus on Roman aggression. The wars in Sicily were waged by the premier families of the Carthaginian nobility for centuries, and the scope of these conflicts could be outlandish, as was seen in my episode on Agathocles. Even though the Carthaginian citizens did not fight as much in the land armies as the Romans, they were still very much present in the fleets. And it wasn't just the doggedness of the Romans that the First Punic War dragged on for 24 years. The Carthaginians were almost as relentless as the Romans, making up for the lack of manpower in the form of finances to pay for more ships and mercenaries to shore up their ranks. It also could be argued that the Romans weren't under the assumption that taking Masana would lead to open warfare, though I wonder if any ancient power would tolerate such a move in the first place. But if the Romans were expecting an all-out conflict with the famously nautical Carthage, why didn't they have a proper navy built until a few years into the war? In my opinion, the war broke up because Rome was operating under the notion that offense is the best defense, and that they fully believed they were operating within their rights to defend the Mamertines, not that it's necessarily justifiable in our eyes. There was no preliminary plan to take Sicily, but they sought to prevent Carthage from gaining an opportunity, and the resulting 24 years of escalating warfare was a consequence of mission creep in conjunction with the shared refusal to admit defeat, thanks to the enormous resources and belligerent attitudes of both parties. Still, this is merely my opinion, and is but a taste of the incredibly complicated debates that rage around the origins of the war. In any case, the Roman Senate deliberated, and when they were split on whether to help the Mamertines out or not, it is said that they went to the popular assembly, who immediately voted to send an army under the consul Appius Claudius Caudex to relieve Masana. Upon receiving word, the Mamertines kicked out the Carthaginian garrison and hunkered out to wait for the arrival of the Romans. Whether intentional or not, thus had began the First Punic War. In the year 264, Claudius and the consular army had crossed the Strait of Messina and entered Sicily, making this the first, and certainly not the last, time in history where Roman boots would step upon non-Italian soil. By this point, the garrison had been forcibly removed from Messana by the Mamertines, but was allowed to return peacefully back to Punic territory, though the unlucky Carthaginian commander involved had been crucified for his blunder. The vulnerability of the Mamertines actually prompted King Hero to make an alliance with the Carthaginians to besiege the city, a testament to the disruption that the campaigning expatriates caused during their decades-long stay. Claudius's transport ships that had crossed the straits had skirmished with a number of Carthaginian vessels, but nothing major seems to have occurred that would later be seen in the engagements at Echnomus or Japana. As evidence that large-scale warfare was not necessarily the desired outcome, negotiations were promptly opened up between all parties, and even a number of prisoners and captured ships were returned under good auspices by the Carthaginians to the Romans. Claudius argued that Rome had no interest in keeping Masana, rather that they wished to protect the independence of their allies, which would include the Mamertines since they were originally from Italy. Understandably furious, Hero shot back at the ridiculousness of the Senate's seemingly altruistic motives to protect a gang of murderers, plunderers, and robbers, and quickly left the table. 
The Carthaginian general Hanno had also reached an impasse with the Romans, but warned them that should they continue along this path, Carthage, quote, would never permit the Romans even to wash their hands in the sea. And so, the war kicked off proper, with Claudius engaging in a lengthy battle with the Syracusans, resulting in a Roman victory with the dead Greeks being stripped of their armor, though there's no indication that the Carthaginians had tried to step in at any point, a bone of contention that would be brought up shortly thereafter. It seems that the Romans were initially under the impression that they would be mainly fighting against King Hero, rather than the Carthaginians, and Claudius appropriately made a beeline to Syracuse while attacking the surrounding Greek settlements along the way. The consul wanted to besiege the city, an ambitious effort given that Carthage had unsuccessfully attempted to do so for almost two years during the tyranny of Agathocles, but the one-year limit of the consul's term required Claudius to return back to Rome. In 263, both consuls Manius Otacilius Crassus and Manius Valerius Maximus went to Sicily, bringing with them approximately 40,000 troops, a sizable invasion force by any standards of the time. With prospects of such a formidable army and the lack of success so far in the campaign, Hero realized the situation he found himself in. Sure, he may have allied with the Carthaginians out of a hatred of the Mamertines, but Hanno didn't seem to make much of an effort to uphold the alliance when Claudius routed the Syracusan army the previous year, and with 40,000 Italian soldiers taking vast swaths of countryside and preparing to besiege the city, there seemed to be only one logical outcome. Hero sued for peace, which the consuls happily accepted, and allowed him to remain the ruler of Syracuse along with a nominal amount of cities under fealty, but under the stipulation that, all Roman prisoners be returned without ransom, and a payment of 100 silver talents be made for the trouble. Surprisingly, the king of Syracuse would remain a steadfast Roman ally throughout the war, providing essential supplies when the Roman lines were stretched thin, down to his death nearly 50 years later in 215. In all honesty, not having to besiege Syracuse probably resulted in mixed feelings among the Roman camps. One part relief given that the city was ultimately a fortress and would have seriously hampered the efforts of the Romans, but it also meant that your average rank-and-file legionary would miss out on the opportunity to collect vast amounts of booty. By the end of the year, the consuls returned back to Rome with some of the army to reduce the pressure on their logistics, and in 262, the new consuls Lucius Postumius Megellus and Quintus Mamilius Vitulus arrived in their stead. During all of this, the Carthaginians were preparing for an eventual clash with Rome as well, perhaps hoping that Syracuse would have stymied their progress. But they hired mercenaries from Iberian and Celtic regions across modern Spain and France in an effort to bolster their own forces, after seeing the extent to which Rome would ferry troops across. Agathocles' invasion of Africa in 310 certainly appeared to be an existential threat at the time, but Carthage never truly faced a rival that had the resources to match them. And the one resource that the Romans had was manpower. Lots of it. Part of the success of the Roman system was its ability to incorporate vast amounts of allied troops, referred to this period as the Succii, who were mainly Latin or Italic-speaking peoples that were bound by military treaties to serve alongside the sizable citizen armies of Rome herself. The military capacity was staggering, and based upon records given to us by Polybius that date just prior to the Second Punic War, the Romans could potentially draw upon a pool of approximately 740,000 infantrymen. Of course, this figure is paper strength, 
and the standing Roman army would only reach about 250 to 400,000 strong by the 2nd, 3rd century AD. But it is a major reason why Rome could wage wars on the scale that they did, and combine that with a nearly relentless drive to pursue victory, the Romans hit way above their weight class. Carthage, while lacking the citizen body to match Rome's, was a financial juggernaut powered by the prosperous North African and foreign territories they held sway over, allowing them to afford mercenaries from across the Mediterranean world, which could perform just as well as a citizen army given the right circumstances. In addition, the Carthaginians were also masters of the sea, a hegemony that was carefully maintained for almost three centuries through advanced ship designs and talented navigators, while the Romans were largely landlubbers. Of course, things would soon change, but we'll come to that in due time. The year 262 would result in the first land engagements between the Romans and the Carthaginians. Centered at the city of Acragas, Hannibal, son of Gizgo, was still waiting for many of the mercenaries to arrive, and was focused more on defense, as the arrival of the consuls to Acragas meant a protracted siege. This wasn't any easier for the Romans. After all, Acragas was the competitor with Syracuse for being the greatest city in Greek-controlled Sicily, and some unlucky legionaries were picked off by skirmishing Punic troops while out foraging for grain. Still, Hero's stream of supplies from the nearby settlement of Herbessus allowed the Romans to continue the siege for the next five months, while the Carthaginians inside had begun to starve, their numbers swollen with refugees that put immense strain on the city's supplies. Luckily for Hannibal, a Carthaginian commander known as Hanno the Elder had come to the rescue with an army to match the Roman consular armies in size, reportedly 50,000 infantry, about 6,000 cavalry, and 60 war elephants. Hanno quickly overran Herbessus, meaning that the besieging Romans were themselves trapped without any supplies, and they too had begun to starve and suffer from epidemics amidst the squalid conditions of the camps and malnutrition. In a moment of desperation on the part of the Romans, a body of cavalry was sent out to meet the advancing Carthaginian force. While Roman cavalry is often unfairly perceived as being second-rate, they simply were unable to match the famed riding skills of the Numidians, whose semi-nomadic lives were spent navigating the often arid regions of modern Algeria and Tunisia on horseback from a very young age. These light cavalrymen were sent out from the main body of the Punic army, taunting the Romans by riding close to their camp and harrying them with war cries and missiles. In the heat of the moment, the Roman horses chased after these Numidians, who retreated just out of reach into the Carthaginian infantry line, and they were faced with an onslaught of African troops, with only a few survivors managing to make it back to the Roman camp with the Numidians harassing them the entire way. This amazing talent for rioting would be one of the major contributing factors for Rome's eventual victory in the Second Punic War, when they were able to negotiate an alliance between themselves and the Numidians under the chieftain-turned-king Massinissa. But that's a story for another time. With this success, Hanno pushed further and fortified a nearby hill known as the Taurus, and both parties remained where they were for the next two months, though the cries for help from Hannibal and the Kragas meant decisive action needed to be taken. The Roman and Punic armies lined up for battle sometime in late 262, early 261. The Romans arranged in the tried and true manipular formation, with three staggered lines of the sword and shield-wielding Hastati and Principes, along with the spear-wielding Triarii in the back. The Carthaginians held reserves of Libyan warriors armed in the hoplite manner, Various Celtic and Iberian swordsmen, along with the Numidian horsemen and war elephants positioned behind. Clashes soon broke out, 
the Romans fighting with a ferociousness driven by starvation and pent-up aggression, and the feeling was mutual on the Punic line. The mercenaries hired by the Carthaginians faced the brunt of the Roman buzzsaw and found themselves being hemmed in by the advancing legionaries and the elephants and cavalry behind them. The pressure soon became too much, and the mercenaries broke their stations and fled with the Romans overwhelming the Carthaginian forces in the struggle, and the consuls were victorious. In the aftermath, the exhausted Romans had been careless in arranging their sentries, and Hannibal, with whatever was left of the remaining Carthaginian garrison in the Kragas, managed to escape past the Roman lines. In a mixture of fury and excitement, the Romans broke into the now defenseless Akragas and carried out a massive sack, plundering the city's treasures and carrying off some 25,000 captives for the slave markets in Rome. Not an unexpected outcome for a city that held out under siege for as long as it did. When word reached back to Rome regarding the Battle of Agrigentum, for Akragas would soon be renamed by the Roman conquerors, the Senate was ecstatic at both the success on the battlefield and the vast amounts of plunder that essentially paid for the war. The mission of protecting the Mamertines' independence had transformed into subduing the king of Syracuse, and now, yet again, the parameters had changed. With the Romans now confident that they could defeat the largest of Carthaginian armies, and with the treasury filled to the brim with Sicilian gold and silver, the Senate made up their mind on doing what the Greeks had failed to do for centuries, drive the Carthaginians out of Sicily, and take the island for themselves. Agrigentum would be the first of four pitched battles to be fought during the entirety of the First Punic War, but these would be land engagements. If Rome was to win the war, they were going to have to turn their attention from exclusively terra firma and look towards the sea, where they will do far more than merely washing their hands. From 261 down to 256, the bulk of land operations in Sicily had essentially slowed down to a crawl between both powers. Minus one or two skirmishes, the vast majority of events would be taking place in the Mediterranean Sea. Prior to the outbreak of the war, Carthage was the uncontested hegemon of all things nautical, something we covered extensively in episode 40, and the Romans were uncomfortable with dipping their toes, so to speak. The pressure to change this attitude was exacerbated by the fact that Hero was the only thing keeping the bellies of the legions full in the midst of a disrupted supply line, and Carthaginian raiding parties were sailing up and down the coast of Italy and harassing Roman ships as well. Now, it isn't true that there had been no Roman navy in the past, but the extent of shipbuilding was centered around the production of triremes in the late 4th century, which was an older and cheaper model than the more advanced quinquireme and quadrireme that were the norm in the Hellenistic and Carthaginian navies. Almost 50 years later, in 261, after the Battle of Agrigentum, the Romans were to initiate an extensive, and expensive, building program to add the most advanced ship designs in vast numbers to their navy. According to tradition, as put forward by Polybius, during the initial crossing of the Strait of Messina, a Carthaginian vessel that was overly eager in its pursuit of the Roman ships had accidentally sailed into shallow waters and beached itself, completely intact and promptly captured by the Romans. The advanced designs of this quincarim devised by Carthaginian shipbuilders were now to be copied by the Romans, and it would form the prototype model for the entirety of the Roman fleet. Archaeological evidence, 
based upon the recovery of Punic shipwrecks dating to this period, also indicates that one of the additional advantages of the Carthaginian model was that each piece of the ship had a unique symbol that followed the template and allowed for standardized construction, similar to how model kits are built by hobbyists today. The effects were obvious. Initial efforts were slow and clunky, but through the application of Punic building techniques, hired shipwrights, and undoubtedly slave labor, they managed to produce a hundred quincureems and twenty triremes, going from cutting the trees down to a sea-ready vessel in sixty days, according to Pliny the Elder. This is a phenomenal feat by any standards of the time. And to prepare the rowing crews during the construction, Polybius claims the rowers would sit upon makeshift rowing benches on the beach and practice the motions to be as synchronized as possible. This is a very dramatic portrayal of the birth of the Roman navy, and certainly there is criticism by modern scholars that suggests that some elements are played up to be more narratively appropriate, since the Romans probably had borrowed designs from the Greeks of Syracuse or the other cities of Magna Graecia. Still, there is evidence from other periods of practicing rowing on land and the benefit of Carthaginian ship construction, so we can't immediately discount it either. The fleet would be ready by the beginning of 260, and headed by the consul Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio, a member of the Scipiones branch of the Cornelii that would become so intertwined with the destinies of Rome and Carthage throughout all three Punic Wars. Gnaeus was given command of 17 ships to meet the rest of the fleet at Masana, but when the prospect of taking a town by treachery proved too irresistible to ignore, the consul unwittingly sailed himself into Punic captivity off the Lipari Islands, an act that would later earn him the moniker Asina, or Jackass. The other consul, Gaius Duilius, was in control of the land forces, but when word reached him of Gnaeus' capture, he quickly left the army to take control of the fleet and meet the Carthaginian navy that had gathered off the shore of Milai, the modern Milazzo. Hannibal, the very same Punic commander who escaped from Acragas the year earlier, was stationed with the Carthaginian fleet of about 130 vessels, somehow managing to avoid the fate of his, some of his contemporaries who were crucified for their failed generalship. The capture of the consul and his 17 ships was an unexpected event, and the Roman navy managing to ambush one of the subordinate Punic generals' fleets was also unexpected. But the general impression was that for all the Romans building projects, they were no more masters of the sea than a child playing with a toy boat in a pond. Reports came in that the Romans had deployed the remaining a hundred or so of their ships, and were headed for what seemed a suicide mission. The Carthaginian sailing expertise could allow them to spin circles around the landlubber Romans, who no doubt would try the rather primitive method of simply ramming the Carthaginian ships head-on in a futile effort. While Punic warships could skillfully maneuver around and shear the enemy's oars off and kill or maim the unlucky rower, or ram the Roman ships with little damage to their own. Hannibal, at the helm of the flagship originally taken from Pyrrhus of Epirus, was feeling confident at his prospects. Yet, as the Roman fleet slowly approached in the distance, something was familiar, yet wasn't quite right. Instead of being staffed with the rowers and usual ship hands, the Roman quincureems were absolutely stuffed to the brim with what appeared to be heavily armed infantry. And even more bizarre was an unusual projection sticking upright and anchored to one of the main masts by a series of pulleys and ropes. When the two finally came head to head, this projection, actually a gangway plank fitted with a large iron spike, pivoted around the mast and was released, crashing down and embedding the spike into the Carthaginian deck, tying the boats together like some parasitic twin. 
The Roman Marines swarmed the gangplank like ants across a log, and began to hack at the lightly armed Carthaginian seamen, ship by ship, until the Punic force was shattered. This device is known as the Latin corvus, or the Greek corax, a reference to its similar appearance to a raven's beak, and in Polybius' opinion, it was a decisive innovation on the part of the Romans. If the Romans could not match the Carthaginian navy in technical skill, they could turn a sea battle into a land one instead, where they held the advantage. The Battle of Milai, therefore, had taken an unexpected turn, as 30 Carthaginian ships were captured in the initial attack, and another 20 were taken with little resistance as the Punic forces tried to overcome their shock of the scene, including Pyrrhus's famed Septirim, though Hannibal once again managed to escape. Like with the rest of Polybius' description of Rome's emergence on the naval scene, the impact of the Corvus has come under question. Because it appears so predominantly in the narrative for about four years, and disappears entirely after 256, it is highly likely that it was no longer implemented because it was either cumbersome for the ship, or the Carthaginians developed a countermeasure shortly thereafter. In addition, such boarding tactics were already used in Classical Greece and the Hellenistic period but it was apparently a novelty enough to surprise the Carthaginians to allow for several Roman victories. The success at Milai was a huge morale booster on the behalf of the Romans, as Gaius Duilius was given the first naval triumph in Roman history, which is also the first of many Roman triumphs to include Carthaginian-born captives in the procession, as recorded in an inscription on one of the surviving victory monuments dedicated to Duilius, the Columna Rostrata. After Milai, the Romans were able to press on the Carthaginian weakness by rescuing a besieged Segesta and capturing the town Massella. Hannibal once again tried to raise a fleet to fend off the Romans, but was quickly trapped in a harbor off the coast of Sardinia and lost many of the ships. For his incompetence, Hannibal was forcibly retired by the Carthaginian Council of 104 and spent his final days strapped to a cross. From 259 to 257, relatively little was accomplished, though a brief naval engagement led by the consul Gaius Attilius Regulus off the coast of the Aeolian Islands turned from disaster to a Roman victory. At the moment, it seemed that the direction of the war was to be determined by the actions on the sea, and so throughout the rest of 257, the Romans and Carthaginians aggressively built up their navies for a showdown off of Cape Echnomus, modern Lakata in southern Sicily. Amazingly, this would be the largest sea battle ever to be fought in the ancient world. From what reports we get, the Roman fleet was an astonishing 330 ships strong, headed by two hexareme ships commanded by the consuls Marcus Attilius Regulus and Lucius Manlius Vulso. The Carthaginians were numerically superior, at least in terms of ships, bringing around 350 vessels led by a Hamilcar and Hanno, the same general who lost the Battle of Agrigentum. If the numbers of crewmen that Polybius provides us are accurate, with about 300 rowers and 120 marines on every Roman ship, to a slightly smaller number of maybe 350 per Carthaginian, we are looking at a battle involving at least 250,000 men. For reference, the largest naval battle of the Second World War took place at Leyte Gulf, with around 200,000 personnel. Coming from the east, the consuls had arranged the fleet into a wedge formation, with the 1st and 2nd squadron acting as the sides of the triangle, with the hexaremes at the tip of the hollow spearhead, and forming the base was the 3rd squadron behind them. Behind the wedge were the horse transports, towed by the 3rd squadron, and at the very back was the 4th squadron, 
known affectionately as the Triarii, spread across in a line to act as a defense for the transports. Despite the tension that hung in the air, the Carthaginian generals had attempted to counteract the Roman deployment by spreading their center line thin with a row of single ships. Headed by Hamilcar and Hanno respectively, they concentrated the left wing perpendicular to the Sicilian coastline, and the fastest ships would be placed in the right wing further out in the sea. The Romans took the bait, with the first and second squadrons sailing in hot pursuit of the Carthaginian center, which had feigned retreat to draw them out before launching a counterattack. With the Roman fleet now pulled apart, Hanno and the right wing slammed into the Triarii, while Hamilcar and the left went after the third squadron and transports, effectively creating three separate fronts. Though the Carthaginian ships were faster, any of them that came into the reach of the first and second squadron were anchored by the Corvi and had their crew cut to pieces by an onslaught of angry Roman marines. The third squadron took a gamble by releasing the tow lines of the horse transports in order to focus on dealing with Hamilcar, and only managed to keep the Carthaginians from coming closer for fear of their gangplanks. Thankfully, the first and second squadron had totally smashed the Carthaginian center, and Regulus quickly took the second squadron to defend the Triarii. Several Punic vessels were captured or sunk in the process, and Hamilcar had already sounded the retreat, while Hanno found his ships boxed in by the first and third squadrons. Although both Punic commanders would make it out, many of their troops were not so lucky, as at least 30 Carthaginian vessels were outright destroyed, and 64 of them captured with the unlucky survivors either executed or taken to slavery, a loss of approximately 32,000 sailors. The victory at Cape Agnomus was an outstanding achievement for the Romans, who were able to prove that they could outmaneuver the famed Carthaginian navy, though they too had taken losses at about 24 warships sunk in the process, roughly around 10,000 casualties. What was also so important about this victory was that it opened the door for a plan that had been in the works, and this is the reason why there were so many troop and horse transports in the battle. If Rome was to quickly end this war after almost nine years of continuous fighting, they were going to have to be more ambitious than contesting over small towns in Italy. Like Agathocles of Syracuse half a century prior, the consul Marcus Attilius Regulus was now able to carry a vast body of legionaries to Africa and take the fight directly against the city of Carthage itself and finally end the war once and for all. And so, this is where we will end the first part of our two-episode series on the First Punic War. Before you go, however, I wanted to make a few announcements regarding current events and the direction of the show. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to all my listeners and supporters, and a special thanks goes out to those working to keep the proverbial ship afloat, whether in healthcare, retail, restaurants, or anything in between. I understand that these are challenging times, and I hope everyone stays healthy and happy. So please, do your part to make sure that we all make it through this together. Now, in regards to the podcast, I wanted to give an outline for the next few months so you have an idea of what direction we are heading in. After the next episode, which covers the remaining portion of the First Punic War, we'll be taking a lead from the overall narrative and dedicating time to covering the four main schools of philosophy that emerged in the Hellenistic period. Cynicism, Skepticism, Stoicism, and Epicureanism. Following that, we'll be spending several episodes discussing the regions of the Black Sea in Asia Minor, along with the foundation of the kingdoms of Pontus and Pergamon, the Galatians and Thracians, and the Bosporan Greeks and the peoples of the Steppe. This should take us to episode 50 at the very least, 
which will be a special Q&A episode to celebrate. While I will do a bit more of a formal announcement as we get closer to the date, you can send in questions early via my social media accounts, such as Twitter or Facebook, or you can email me at hellenisticagepodcast at gmail.com. I've included a couple of helpful images in the show notes for this episode on my website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com, along with my bibliography and a timeline to help with any questions regarding the chronology. All these links will be provided in the podcast description. So, until then, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>